0: So, we are in Revelation, and we're in the second chapter, and we have been going through a series of, of, of letters to uh, different churches in, in Asia, and so we're, so we're reading some mail, aren't we? And this past October, my, my, my wife and I, we, we moved from NDG to... To NDG, <laughs> um, and moving, of course, can be this very like stressful, difficult, uh, hectic time. With there's lots of bases to cover, lots of things to remember. And if you're like me, the, the smallest things you forget, changing your address. And so you go, and you know, in the first week, you check your mail, and you have tons of mail, and it's all for the previous tenant. You know, tenant. None of it's for you. And I'm, we're actually still getting mail from our last, from the last owner. I think Revelation is a bit like this, the book that we're in, and that we're receiving what was originally someone else's mail. And not only do we receive it, we get to do what we've always been tempted to do, and we get to read it, right? <laughs> and of course, this isn't a federal offense, but this is actually this is intentional. And each of us, what we, what we refer to uh, as the, the seven letters to the seven churches is actually all one letter, distributed between uh, seven churches as circulated. And so uh, this one letter actually contains seven messages uh, to different churches, and each church is reading each other church's mail. And now when I say church, I just want to say I I don't mean a building. And for those of you who are new here, you're probably wondering where the organ is. Well, (laughs) uh, don't use that joke again. They're not very portable. (laughs) (laughs) About <laughs> welcome though if you 're new here uh, by church by church, I mean the the freed people of God living under the rule and the reign of jesus, and so it's not it 's not like a wooden institution, but it 's rather this living organism of people like you and me, and so the church gathering is reading each other 's mail. Why is that? Well, the the letters, they contain things that all of the churches need to hear. And what was happening in one church was happening, what was relevant to what was happening in another church. And in that same way, what was happening then, I want to say, is relevant to us today, relevant to us now. These messages written for churches 2,000 years ago in Asia Minor are still relevant to us today here in Montreal. So so then what sort of book what sort of book might might this be? Well these messages are part of a book that we've you know we've seen we call it the Bible and it's a book called Revelation and Relev- Revelation is it's a difficult book for us to understand today because it's it's a genre of literature called Apocalypse, it's unique, it's, it's unfamiliar to us. And ap- apocalypse is this genre in which prophetic, symbolic dreams and visions are used to reveal God's purposes so that the present can be viewed in light of the future. So prophetic, symbolic dreams and visions used to reveal God's purposes so that through them, the, the present, can be viewed in light of the future. And so all of those seven churches needed to hear God's perspective on their current situation in light of God's vision, in light of God's perspective, in light of the future, as we do today. When I spoke on the temptation of Christ in January, I spoke, we were going through a series on the Bible, and I preach on the Bible as a weapon. You might remember that When the Bible describes our encounters with supernatural evil, it uses battle language. Now, the the book of Revelation, it's revealing. It's drawing back the curtains so that the reality can be seen, that there's this epic spiritual battle happening, and we're in the middle of it. But, But remember, it isn't a war against flesh and blood. And by the way, Jesus never... Jesus said, those who live by the sword will perish by the sword. He never endorsed warfare or violence, but, but there's this spiritual battle going on and revelation is pulling back the curtains so that we can see our present situation in light of this, this greater reality. And so there's, how does revelation help us understand that? Well, it's that the bookends, oh, I'm a bit behind here, but the bookends of revelation become the bookends of our lives. And I used to, I used to use uh, bookends on, on my bookshelves. And these are sort of, you know, I'm an engineer. Those are buttresses. Those are, those are things on either side that support the books that keep them from falling over. Well, the reality of what has been done and will be done in Jesus becomes the supporting bookends of our lives. On one end, we had what we saw uh, when Dwight first preached on this series. And that is in chapter one, that Jesus died and rose again. He is the risen victor who lives on and offers us life. And on the other end, the end of Revelation, chapters 21, 22, we have the glorious future in which the spiritual battle is won and Jesus reigns and he enters into his creation to dwell with us, to renew the earth. And so, like the book of Revelation, our lives sit between those two bookends. Where on one hand, the battle is won and death has died, the risen Christ behind us and on the other end, the glorious future where Christ will reign forever and be with us, dwell with us. These are the bookends that keep us, like the books, upright. Right? They give us the vision to live faithfully as brothers and sisters, to not deny the faith, not deny his name. And this is the mail that we have received. It is in this that we get today's message. What a brother read. So today we'll be looking at who messaged us, what the message is, and how do we reply? Who messaged us? What is the message all about? And how do we reply? So first, who messaged us? We live in a generation of texting, don't we? Um, So verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, well, uh, where is Pergamum? First, per- Pergamum is situated in what would be today's uh, uh, modern Turkey. But at the time, it was the, the, the capital of that region. It was the capital of Asia Minor. And it sat up on top of this 1,300-foot hill, which would be... Uh, about three hundred feet the same height as Mount Saint. Hilaire, and it was an acropolis, and in Greek Acropolis means uh, high and polis means city, so there 's a city up on the top of the hill, and like Mount St. Hilaire has that really steep face that you hike and you look out over all the you know, kind of the valley below. Well, in that way, imagine it was actually like steep all the way around, and so there's this, this city up on the top of the hill, and around it are all the valleys of agriculture and so on and uh, you can you can go to it today and you can visit it, it's a ruin, and you can take a gondola up to the top, and up at the top there's this, this 10,000 person theater built by the ancient Greeks, and they didn't just have a theater up on the top there, there was actually a library, in fact, Pergamum is known for its library, they had over 200,000 volumes of books and uh, Parchment, what we call parchment, the word actually comes in the Latin from Pergamum because parchment was developed in Pergamum, that writing on the animal skins there. So they had this library and they had uh, this huge theater. And so it was this, this, this cultural hub. It was this social and cultural hub. It was sophisticated. And it's described by uh, the, uh, the historian Pliny of someone who a historian of the time from the area as the most illustrious city in all of Asia and that city, so it had the, the, um, the libraries, and it had the theater, it was a hub, but also had lots of temples. It had a temple to Zeus, the god of the sky, sky. it had a, a temple to Dionysus, the god of, of pleasure and sexual satisfaction, it had a temple to Athena, the god of, of law and of wisdom, it had a temple to Asclepius, the god of healing. And with all these temples, there was also another temple that was built uh, in 29 AD. And that was uh, for the emperor uh, Caesar Augustus. And that was a temple to worship Caesar. And so this, this is Pergamum. This is the Pergamum we're talking about. Now, Now, who sent this message? Verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword... Now, who is this? Well, like all the message to the churches, they each start with a vision of Jesus in which a characteristic of Jesus is highlighted and is entirely appropriate for that particular church. So Jesus is the one here. He is speaking as the one with the sword. Well, why? The sword speaks of his authority to express judgment. And I want to actually unpack this further. It comes up later in Revelation. In Revelation uh, 19, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped or sprinkled in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from their mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations. You know, sometimes I think we think of Jesus as kind of the incarnate baby, you know cuddly, meek, and mild. But look at this. He's the one coming in the, with the, on the white horse, the one described as the word of God, the one with the, the double-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. See, the letter to the church in Pergamon starts with this image, this characteristic of Jesus to remind us that he alone is the ultimate arbitrator. He is the one who has the sole and ultimate authority to express justice. The the sword is an expression of God's justice, his judgment. And to those reading this, to the listeners, this would be comforting. Well, why? Because the rulers and authorities of Pergamon, they had swords too. And they had actually used those swords against someone named Antipas, someone who, in judgment, he had died for his faith. And yet, Unlike those rulers, Jesus calls us to remember that he is the final arbitrator. He is the one who has the final authority. So some of us probably find this image, let's be honest, Jesus on a conquering horse, disturbing, fearsome. But like we saw, it's also comforting that for the church that knows Jesus, that knows that he is a good and a trustworthy judge, this is comfort. But for the church that is looking elsewhere to Jesus for its satisfaction, this is a loving warning call. Remember Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia when she asks about Aslan the lion, she is told, he isn't safe, but he is good. And so like Aslan, Jesus isn't safe, but he is wholly good. We can trust he is good. We can trust that he will judge rightly with the sword that proceeds from his mouth and this is the Jesus who messaged the church of pergamum it's hard to ignore it's hard to delete it's hard to swipe past a message that has a sender like that isn't it so let's let's open this message and let's read it what is the message well verse 13 i know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who is killed among you, where Satan dwells. I know where you live, where Satan dwells. So as we saw, Pergamum was this this regional hub and a center of, of gods and emperor worship. You could say it was the capital city in the region of idolatry, a.k.a. Satan's throne room. <laughs> Zeus' temple was up on the citadel, up on the top of this hill, and it was even shaped like a throne. And Satan, you could say, he wasn't just passing through. He had moved in to stay. In other words, it was a hard place to be a Christian. It was a hard place to be faithful. And I don't think that here... We're that far removed from that. You know, we've had people visit Montreal. We've had people move to Montreal that say, from other places, they they found Quebec to be a very very spiritually dark place, a very hard place to do ministry in. And maybe you think, you know, it's a hard context. It's a hard place for me here too. I'm the only Christian in my workplace. There's, There's no one that thinks like me. It's a very secular environment or I'm the only Christian in my residence, or I'm the only Christian in my class in school. Maybe, this one hits closer to home, maybe I'm the only Christian in my family. And to all of this, Jesus says, I know where you live, I know how hard it's been, and yet you've held true to my name, that even when the pressure was huge, you didn't deny me. And that was true of that man Antipas, wasn't it? Church tradition says that he was the bishop, or that's the church leader, who was appointed by a guy named John, who was a follower of Jesus. And because of his refusal to worship the emperor, because he wouldn't say Caesar Kairos, which is Caesar is Lord, but rather Christos Kairos, Christ is Lord, that he was slowly roasted to death in a bull in the reign of Emperor. Um, Domitian in 92 AD. That he was killed for his faith. He didn't deny it under extreme pressure. And what does Jesus do? Jesus commends him for it. That he, that Bishop of Antipas, he, he saw his situation through the bookends, that vision of reality. Christ behind us, the risen victor who gives us life, Christ ahead of us who will reign forever, renew and restore this earth. And he remained faithful But the message continues in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So who were the Nicolaitans? They first came up when Dwight preached on Ephesus, the first uh, church in this series. And uh, the Ephesians, Christians were said to have hated the practices of the Nicolaitans, and they were commended for that. I think it's hard. Church tradition isn't very clear on who the Nicolaitans were, but I think the best clue we have is to look at Scripture itself, and see how they are paralleled with this Balaam episode. And when we look at the Balaam episode, the clue, is, the clue that we find is, is there, there was a work to undermine the people of God. A plan to undermine subtly the people of God, the Israelites. And in the book of Numbers we see that the people of God, they're en route from the wilderness to enter the land of Canaan. And the Moabite king, Balak, he is worried um, about the coming in of these people, what it might become of his kingdom. He feels threatened. And so he pays this guy, Balaam, to go and to curse the people of God. Now, Balaam is prevented from being able to carry out that curse, and rather he actually ends up blessing them. But you see, when Balaam has tried to... uh, wage this full-scale attack against the people of God, it it doesn't work. And so what does he do? He kind of goes back and he re-strategizes, and he takes a more subtle approach. And that is, he tells the king, you know, encourage the woman to go into the camp of the people of God and seduce the men and have sex with them. And you know what? It works. They have sex with them. And before you know it, the Israelites, the people of God, they are participating in idle feasts and in immorality. Now, don't hear me being down on sex, okay? God created sex. It's a good thing. He designed it. It's, it's for his, it's for our pleasure. It's to express intimacy and to have the amazing possibility of creating new life. But when God created sex, he fit it with form, with purpose, with intentionality, And so often we can use it for our own distorted intentions, can't we? So what is happening here in Pergamum? Well, Balaam's strategy, like Balaam's strategy, the Nicolaitans, they have come along and they're subtly undermining the work of the people of God. You see, we have those in the church who are strong and able to resist the full-on attack of persecution, but they're weak and that they're undermined by the enticement of idolatry. When Satan comes like a roaring beast to devour, we're able to withstand him. And yet when he comes like a cunning serpent, we are compromised and enticed. There's a subtle step-by-step process of undermining that happens. It might be the voice of a coworker or a friend who says, come on, you know you're missing out. You can believe what you want. You can keep holding on to that but just don't, don't let it get in the way of this. It's hard to be a Christian when we're surrounded by other voices. In, in Pergamon, the temple were hubs. They were sexual hubs. They were, cubs. They were go, where you would go to engage in, in temple prostitution in order to connect with the gods. It was seen as a natural thing. It was seen as a normal thing. You, won't, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't want to miss out. The temples were also social hubs. There were there were wedding there, so there were the big parties there. Anyone who was everyone was there. And at all these events, there were these big meals. And at the meals, there would be food dedicated, offered to the gods as part of the evening. Who who wouldn't want to go to the parties? Wouldn't you want to get to know your neighbors? And the temples weren't just sexual and social hubs. They were also economic hubs. They were where the, the deals were forged and signed. It's where the trade guilds met. Wouldn't, wouldn't you want to know the people that you work with? Wouldn't you want to get to know the people in your field? You wouldn't, you wouldn't want to miss that. You'd be missing out. Then, then in the church, along starts to come the same suggestion. It's okay. You can join in. It's, it's, it's not really, it's not a real problem. You see, the church that was on guard when persecution came, when it was a decision between God or something, but it was undermined when it was a much subtle suggestion of God and something. And that's true today, isn't it? We are so easily undermined when Satan comes along and suggests, you don't need to give up Christ. You can just do Christ and. You're missing out. You're missing out sexually. You're missing out socially. You're missing out economically. It's how Satan enticed the Israelites, Pergamum, and how he can entice us. Instead of God or something, it can be God and something, you see, this isn't a problem of denying Jesus. It's a problem of wanting something other than Jesus. The tendency to get from something what we should be getting from God. The tendency to get from something what we should be getting from God. And in the Bible, this is what it calls idolatry. Well, what is an idol? Well, when I say an idol, I'm not referring to uh, what we usually think, right, are the statues and the golden calves, but I'm actually referring to what lies behind those. And that is an idol is anything that captures our affections, our desires, our time, and our money more than Jesus. We think we can have God and something, and so it becomes a sort of pseudo-God, and one that you know what, it ends up functionally playing the role of God for us. An idol then is something that's more fundamental to our meaning and more important to our worth than God. They're not bad things. They're good things put in a position they were never meant to be. They're good things made ultimate things. It can be something like comfort, culture, money, family, spouse, sex, entertainment, all good things. But when they're made ultimate things, they destroy us. And this is summarized in the Bible in Romans chapter one, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creator, creature, rather than the creator, See, idols are these created things that we go to to get what we can only get from our creator, the very source of light itself, and what, to what end? When we turn from the, from to creation for life, we're we depriving ourselves from the true source of life itself. It's a sort of self-death. And do you hear what I'm saying? We don't, we don't need the golden calves. We don't need the statues for our idolatry. We all worship something. We all give and derive worth from something. And that thing or that person, if it's not God, it will eat you alive. But don't take it from me. Take it from the prolific English author, writer, David Foster Wallace, an atheist. He says, um, this is from his famous uh, 2005 commencement speech at Kenyon University and where he said this. Because here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships the only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus or Allah or Yahweh, or their Wicked Mother Goddess, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you had enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly, And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will only ever need more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the edge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're... Not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. Default settings. We all worship something. It's the default setting of our life. Worship anything other than the source of life itself, and it will leave you unsatisfied and crushed by its weight. In other words, like Wallace says, it will eat you alive. And sadly, not long after this, uh, Wallace gave this speech, he took his own life and I'm not going to pontificate, I'm not going to pretend to know what specifically it was that led him to that point, but this speech has become famous because it was one of the few glimpses where he talked about himself personally. Now, Wallace understood the emptiness of the gods that culture has to offer us, be it money, beauty, power, intellect, and tragically, it crushed him. And as gods, these idols, These idols become masters, and as masters, they enslave us, and they indebt us. And we make sacrifices of time, and of money, and of energy, and of relationships in order to serve them, and we end up centering our lives around them. We seek justification in them, always working, never satisfied. But these idols, they can't free us from slavery. They can't redeem us. Instead, they crush us. But there is one who can lift you up, Jesus. Remember when we saw in the text that he was described as riding on that white horse? There was something else there. He was described as wearing a bloodied robe or one sprinkled with blood. In that vision, Jesus is riding into the battle bloodied. Why is that? It is because it's a reminder that Jesus entered into our reality in space and time and took on the consequence of our idolatry, which is death. Remember, when you worship created idols instead of the creator, you cut yourself off from the ground of life itself, and death happens. But Jesus lived the life, the perfect life we could never live, a life of perfect worship and then died the death that you deserve to die. And when you see what Jesus has done, that he went to death for you and he rose to death from death in victory, he can extend life to you and it frees you. You see, your idols can't redeem you, but Jesus can. And so what are we to do about this? How do we reply to this message? How do, I, how do I detect the idols in my life? And see, for most of us here in this room, we're sitting in a church, right? We're calling ourselves Christians. If I ask you, what, is, what are you living for? You know, what is the treasure of your heart? Jesus, it's God, obviously. Default answer, right? <laughs> but the reality is that many of us are prone to functioning. We conceptually believe Jesus is God, but we functionally live as if he is not. How do we see these functional idols in our hearts? I want to suggest that pull out your deepest emotions and you'll find your idols attached to them. Now, I don't want you to hear me saying, as emotions, this is saying that emotions are wrong. However, emotions are indicators, not dictators. And that means while your emotions shouldn't control your behavior, we should pay close attention to them because they expose the roots of our idolatry. And I'm going to get a bit personal here, but uh, when Sandra and I were dating, <clears throat> we decided, or I guess I decided at some point, that things were getting serious enough that um, we were uh, I'd found this little pre-engagement questionnaire. <laughs> so I thought we'd just go through this really this, you know, this series of questions, and it kind of help us know if we were ready to commit to the other person. And uh, we were on this five-hour drive. Plenty of time, right? So we start going through the questions. Boom, 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 boom. <clears throat> and there's one question in particular in that survey that I remember, and it was the question: what about the other person makes you angry? <laughs> and our answers made each other so angry. That we talked about that one question the rest of that five-hour drive. (laughs) And here's what it was. I was angry because at the time, I felt that Sandra wasn't meeting my expectations. I had this vision of what beauty was, of what body image was that I felt she didn't fulfill. And Sandra was angry because up to that point in the relationship, she felt like I wasn't meeting her expectations. She had this vision of how I was supposed to be unending approval, lavishing her, endless affirmation. But I wasn't giving the affirmation she wanted. And she wasn't meeting the perfection I wanted. And this made us both so irrationally angry. <laughs> And what we realized is that I was looking for a standard of beauty in Sandra that was otherworldly and completely unattainable. And that no amount of change that Sandra would make would satisfy me. I had made an idol out of perfection. And what I was looking for in Sandra could only be found in God. I was looking for perfection in someone who was honestly amazing, but someone who was not ultimate perfection itself. And me trying to extract perfection from Sandra was going to continually disappoint me and it was going to crush her. It was a burden she wasn't made to bear. And Sandra realized she was looking for a level of approval in me that was otherworldly, that was unattainable, and no amount of affirmation that I could give Sandra would ultimately satisfy her. And she had made, too, an idol of approval. She was looking in me for affirmation that could only be found in God, that God who fully knows us, the Bible says, delights in us, sings over us, approves of us. Looking for in me was not a load that I could bear, and I would only disappoint her. And so our idols clashed. Because of my perfection idol, Sandra wasn't getting the approval she wanted, and because of her approval, I wasn't getting the perfection I wanted. And it was eating our relationship alive. We were both being crushed by each other's expectations. But what did we both need? We needed Jesus to be our savior, to be our redeemer, to be our rescuer, to see him as more perfect, more affirming than anyone else could ever be. I needed Jesus to readjust what I saw as beautiful, to tear down that image of perfection, my idol, and to see him instead. And seeing Jesus' as perfect beauty I found myself changing and seeing beauty differently. Seeing beauty with the eyes that God sees it. It's not that, look, it's not that we needed to love each other less. It's that we needed to love him more. And because it's, because it's by knowing Jesus, it's by knowing true satisfaction, it's by finding love in him that we're able to love each other. Not for what we can get out of each other. But for who we truly are. So how do you spot the idols in your life? You can ask yourself some of these questions. What are your emotions? Passions, desires. When are they most out of control? Like it was for me and Sandra. Or... What are you most afraid of? What paralyzes you with fear? Unable to move on. Unable to act. What do you long for most passionately? What would you do anything for to get? Whose approval are you seeking? Whose affirmation do you want sung over you? What causes you to be angry at God? Remember, God doesn't want to be your top God, God and something. He wants to be your only God. So how do I deal then, now that I've detected, how do I deal with the idols in my life? Jesus says in verse 16, repent. He calls us to repent. And he's speaking to the church, the whole church, to each one of us. And notice how this is addressed. This is a letter to Christians. This is a letter to believers. Look, the church has really messed up. If you're someone visiting here, if you're a non-Christian, look, don't don't take your cues from us. (laughs) Take them from Jesus. And Jesus is calling us to repent, to have a a heart You turn from idolatry, from sin. Idolatry is just this biblical fancy way of essentially saying sin. And to our sin and to our idolatry, God extends his forgiveness. And so he says in 16, verse 16, therefore repent, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. We've talked about the sword of his mouth, the sword that discerns between the good and evil that we we set up for ourselves, that judgment is coming. But remember that this is a loving warning from the one who faced judgment for us so that we wouldn't have to face it ourselves. A loving warning from the one who faced judgment for us so we wouldn't have to face it ourselves. It says in 1 John that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or we could read that as idolatry. The church family I want to remind you that for every look within, take 10 looks at him. As I look within, you know, I see my propensity to compromise. I see the idols within me. I think sometimes we need to do that. But remember immediately that when you've done that, to look back at him, look back at your redeemer and be comforted by the forgiveness that he extends to you. And only by that, only by looking to Jesus, can we find the power to turn away from our idols. And this is what the Scottish theologian, Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of greater affection. That is, when I'm dealing with the idols in my life, what religion does is it tries to just go cold turkey. It tries to just strip the idol out, just cut it loose. But remember that we are creatures. Our nature is a propensity to worship that we all worship. You can't just rip that idol out, okay? Rather than removing, just ripping it out, you actually need to redirect your attention and worship something greater. And that's what Chalmers said when he said, the best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Here he's talking about religion, right? Just legalism, but Christians overcome the world, we overcome our idolatry and our idols by seeing the beauty and the excellency of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, Christ himself. You see, how how am I gonna deal with the idols in my life? You need to see him as more beautiful, You need to see him as more perfect. You need, if if your idol is one of, of approval, you need to see how he rejoices over you with his gracious approval. I need to repent of my lesser gods, remembering the great God who is above our gods. We can repent by our longing for power by submitting to his greater power within me. We can repent of our longing for comfort by seeing his greater comfort. We can repent by our longing for control to see that he is sovereign. His power is greater, his control is perfect, his comfort is satisfying, his approval is eternal. There is no God like our God. Look to him. And lastly, I would say, how do we know if we've become a church? Like Pergamum. The church in Pergamum was characterized by compromise. They had allowed the subtle enticement of God and to creep in. Not God or, God and to creep in. And in order to fit in, and in order not to miss out on what was happening, like in Pergamum, we saw, you know, sexually or socially or economically, we bend the truth. I want to ask this question. Are we taking freedoms, church? As a church, are we taking freedoms that we shouldn't be taking? This is what is known in Scripture. It's a big word. It's known as licentiousness, right? But just for ease, just think of it as the opposite of being legalistic, of being moralistic, right? On the other side, you have licentiousness. And this is where a sort of cheap grace is uh, extended, uh, taking freedoms that we shouldn't be taking, you know i 've heard i 've heard this this cheap grace expresses a concern uh, by questions that come from my Muslim friends, and they ask it sort of like this: if God just forgives can 't the Christian just sin all they want why would why would anyone if you think about why would anyone fight idolatry and sin if in the end god 's grace just just covers us all that 's where that question is coming from from the perspective of cheap grace you know the late <clears throat> Nabil Qureshi, a convert from Islam to Christianity, he, uh, he recounted a time when he received this question. It was at the end of a debate, and a mother sent up her two young children to ask him this. Uh, what, what reason do Christians have to do good? And he looked at them and he said, <clears throat> after some thinking, do, do you love your mom? And they said, the girl, you know, of course. And he said, uh, well, when your mom asks you to clean the room, which do you think would make her happier if you did it because you love her or if you did it because you knew she would punish you? To which they answered, well, because we love her, of course. And they understood, right? That, that right there, that Christian obedience, rather than being based on law and reward, it's rooted in love. That is our motivation. And cheap grace, it misses the mark and that it fails to recognize the extent that God went to forgive us. To the end his very life. See, cheap grace, it's not cheap grace. It's costly grace. This cheap grace, cheap grace fails to clean the room, right? In contrast, the grace Jesus offers us recognizes our sin right to the reality of our our, our, our idolatry, the messy effect that it causes, and it confronts our sin head on, and it leads Jesus to the cross, and it's costly grace. It one, it's one that doesn't take sin lightly. So, so what are some examples of us becoming a church like Pergamon, a church that compromises um, in sin and idolatry? And I want to suggest uh, three things to us. The first, I was a, the first that I would say is, is people-pleasing that we get this concept that in order to reach more people, we need to downplay unpopular church teachings. We take freedom with, with scripture, with the text, that we don't have license to take. It's, it's not ours to change. We're not free to do that. And that's a sort of cheap grace. See, there's a lie in the church today And then it says, if we compromise sexual holiness, that more people will come into the church. But this is a lie. We can't. Holiness is what testifies to Jesus because it's Christ likeness. That Jesus, he denied his sexuality. He gave up his family. He gave up the Jewish version of life for a higher vision, a vision of the kingdom of God. And that's what demonstrates to people God's holy love. We can't compromise on this. When we we do this, we are worshiping the approval of others, not God's approval of us. We're valuing their perception more than the truth of God's holiness. A second thing I'd suggest is being uncommitted. We don't, that we don't commit. It's easy, Dwight mentioned this last week, it's easy to talk about mission, but not to engage in mission. It takes time time and energy to be on mission with the church. I mean, people, situations are messy. People are messy and things can get frustrating and people can hurt you. And sometimes we don't immediately connect with the people or community and they're different from us and we can't relate to them. But we are called to be on mission as a family, regardless of how uncomfortable it makes us. Even if we don't feel like committing, but God asks us to stop worshiping our comfort And to turn and to worship him. And finally, a final example. I say a common idol in our culture is individualism, and it has affected the church as well. And that's the idea that you know I'm sufficient on my own. It's it's me and my own personal Jesus. It causes us to think, you know, I, I can make this decision on my own. I I you know I prayed about it and this just me and I the spirit told me and that's good. I don't really need to ask the elders about it. I don't need to ask the people in my church community about it, I don't need to ask the the family of God around me about it. It disregards, what does it do? It disregards the work of the spirit in others. And individualism, right? But people who really understand freedom, that's what they're looking for in individualism. But people who really understand freedom is those who take it and lay it down for the good of others. Because this is what Jesus has done for us. He took his freedom and he lay it down for us, for us, the family of God. And so we too take our freedom, we take our individuality and we lay it down for others. And so Church 21, these are the ways, I think, that we can compromise and become a church like Pergamum. But Jesus wants more for us. And so in closing, what does he say? Revelation 2.17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except for the one He receives it. The blessings of God are not achieved. They are received. And instead of idols, he is offering us, he says, hidden manna and a white stone with a name on it. Hidden manna. Well, what is that? Well, manna was this food that God supplied uh, the people of God, the Israelites, as they waited to enter the promised land. They were sustained by it in the wilderness, And so manna, this is our spiritual food. This is our sustenance. So instead of going to that that food offered to idols, instead of going to that man or going to that woman and looking for satisfaction in them, and before long we're tired of them, and we're off to the next man before trying to go into that car or to that money, and before long we're tired of that too, it never satisfies that God himself, he provides for us something far greater something more satisfying. Jesus, he says, he provides himself. He says, I am the hidden manna. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Feed on me. Find your satisfaction in me. I will fill you. This is the hidden manna that Jesus extends to us. And the white stone, There's all sorts of suggestions about what this might mean. White stones were used for a variety of purposes in the ancient world. Um, It could be uh, to cast a vote. And if you had a favorable vote, a favorable vote, you wanted to say yes, you throw in your white stone. It could be um, as a means of admission, you're invited into someone's home and as a welcome, they give you a, a white stone of, of appreciation. Uh, it could be in a court case, if you were found uh, innocent, you know, not guilty, you're given the white stone of, of acquittal. And so it is with God, that he has given us a white stone, that he says yes to you, <laughs> that you are welcome and he extends to you absolute acquittal, that you have been forgiven of your idolatry and of your sin. And because you have been forgiven, you are welcome. Into the presence of God. Jesus extends to you the white stone of acquittal, of welcome and of yes, of approval and appreciation. And that stone, that stone is named. a name that no one knows except for the one that receives it, it says. You see, you are named by God. You're given a name by God that no one else knows because you are known by God better than you know yourself. You are loved by God better than you love yourself. And what he extends to you is a permanent, stable identity offered in him. Permanent like a stone, right? Something that can never be shaken. It becomes the bookends of your life that keeps you standing upright, that keeps you faithful. He offers you an identity that doesn't ebb and flow. It stands on the one who describes himself as the cornerstone. You are a white stone with a unique name, a unique identity given by God that's built on that cornerstone, Christ himself. And that's what he calls us to. That's what he calls us to, church family. And so can we enter into that today? I'm gonna pray and then I'll invite uh, the band down as we respond to him. So Father, I pray... (laughs) that we would see the reality of what you have done for us. That it is utterly amazing that you entered into our space and our time. You stepped into our reality to face death for us, that when we cut ourselves off from you, that we, we kill ourselves by trying to tap our life from created things, that you, the creator, you come in and you rescue us. You buy us back. You are a redemption and you redeem us. And then you, you don't just do that, but you extend to us your approval. You extend to us our satisfaction and identity, God. We thank you for this. And we pray that this would be a reality in our lives that exposes the idols of our heart, rips them out by their very roots, and replaces them with you, our greatest treasure and our greatest delight, the joy of our hearts. May this be true in us, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.